0: Happy Easter and welcome to Emmanuel. It's a privilege to be speaking to people from all across the city, uh, from Shoreham to uh, East Brighton to the Clarendon Villas in Hove and uh, here at the Clarendon Centre. We celebrate on Easter Sunday, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, of course, of Jesus Christ. We celebrate these things every Sunday, really, but Easter gives us a particularly grand opportunity and to help us to do that, I'm going to read to you some extraordinary words, some famous verses from the Bible, and then we'll talk about the, the difference they make in our lives here today. So First Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 18 to the end of the chapter. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You may have the word folly in your Bible, foolishness. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then skipping on to chapter 15, I'm going to read to you just the the verses 17 to 20 uh, towards the end of the letter. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. When we play cards, we have to choose what we're going to do with those two uh, kind of leftover substitute on the bench cards, the, the jokers. Um, We might use them, but but most games don't need the Joker. Having said that, uh, there are perhaps some games where the Joker is is the surprise card that you can use that that trumps all other cards, it beats all others because because it's it's unique, it's different than the others. It doesn't belong to any suit and it's it's able to beat every other. Uh, I guess it's linked with the idea of the the Joker, the jester, uh, the fool, Uh, The idea of this personality, this role, even this, this official job that was given to an individual, sometimes in the medieval court or going back even further in history to ancient times, to a person who somehow got away with saying what no one was allowed to say, a person who was considered a fool, who had to wear a stupid hat and and be regarded as stupid, as somehow kind of tapped in the brain, This, this person that entertained by being foolish, and yet very often the fool had a unique opportunity to speak and be vindicated, to speak and be shown as the only really honest one in the room, the one that spoke truth to the king, who spoke truth to power. And in the same moments, everybody knew that the fool was actually speaking right and was turning everything on its head. In some of the plays of Shakespeare, the fool ends up being the wisest person in the whole cast. Perhaps the most stark example is in the very bleak play, King Lear which records the, the uh, kind of descent of this noble, mighty monarch who begins the playoff in a position of apparent stature and power and uh, who's making great decisions about the future. But as the, the play continues, he descends from one level of sanity to, to a lower one and a lower one still, uh, while, while losing at the same time all of his power and losing all of his influence, all of his dignity, and all of his status. It all gets disintegrated. While that's happening, he's having these fascinating dialogues with the fool character, who time and time again gets to say the most strikingly accurate thing of what's really going on in the story. The fool is the one who seems to really read the situation right. The king, who ought to know better, is being shown as a fool and becoming more foolish, While the fool himself is kind of by the end of the play, although it doesn't necessarily go well for him, he's vindicated. He's shown to be wiser than the king. And that idea kind of runs through history, runs through stories. But I would suggest to you maybe the best example of all, maybe the greatest fool that there's been is Jesus himself. so happens that this year Easter Sunday falls on April Fool's Day. And we didn't think that that was an opportunity to pass up. There's something to be said on, on such a day when Easter and April the first collide. Gives us a chance to, for a moment, consider the foolishness of Jesus and the foolishness of Christianity, the foolishness of the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus, Jesus is the classic fool in the sense that he defied any category. He didn't belong to the tribes or the, the factions or the, 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 the kind of gangs that existed on a political, economic level at the time. And he still doesn't really belong to anyone's gang in this room. No one can co-opt him into their suit. He's kind of above us and beyond us each. And Jesus as well comes in to challenge all of our ideas and preconceptions, all of our, our notions of what's important and what isn't, what's grand and what's irrelevant and feeble, what's, what's to be taken seriously and what's to be treated with contempt. We, we know, surely, we know what's important. We understand what's valid and, and what makes for an important life and we, we even understand God, or we, we think we do. We understand religion. We understand spirituality. We, we are very we're, we're very wise. We're very accomplished as the human race. Very often this is the way we consider ourselves. And then in comes the fool and not only brings a few critiques or suggestions or constructive criticism, Jesus didn't quite do that. Jesus instead turned everything upside down. Jesus, throughout his entire life, and not just through the things he said, there were many ways in which he spoke this way, but by the way he behaved. He was constantly turning our presuppositions, our our ideas, our settled convictions upside down, (laughs) and constantly raising to our attention things that we would never on our own consider. Jesus did this through his deeds and his words. In in the case of, for example, just one one example, the, the the story of when children were brought to Jesus to be blessed by him. This 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 is ridiculous. Thought his disciples, we we we're we're walking around with the master, the the rabbi, the teacher, the, the Jesus. In fact, we wonder if he's perhaps more than just a teacher. We, we, we see him as so noble and so important. Please, could the mothers stop bringing the children to him? Could we just get the children out of the way? Jesus is too important and too busy. This is one of those occasions where Jesus rebuked his disciples. He, he, he told them off. He said, look, look, look you completely missed the point. <laughs> it's the kingdom of God that belongs to such as these. He, he instead begins to reprove his disciples, teaching them to be more like children, in fact. That's just one example among so many where the social kind of hierarchies were were being overturned by, by his priorities. Sometimes his teaching would seem foolish, would seem offensively foolish in a way that even caused large numbers to leave him. The disciples got concerned when, on one occasion in John's Gospel, Jesus starts teaching the crowds, such as they were, real crowds, about how they need to eat his flesh, and drink his blood. (laughs) I don't know how you would feel about that. Someone standing up before you, here's here's my bit of self-help for you this week. Here's what I want you to, here's how to live a good life. First of all, you need to kill me and eat me, and drink my blood. And, and then you 'll then everything will go a lot better for you This was this, as almost criminally strange in that culture as it would be now, if not more so and, and And it says many left him, many thought this is too much. Jesus would from time to time do this, he would seem to kind of cull or, or purge his 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 followers and and, and get it shrunk down a little uh, because he wasn 't interested in in plaudits he wasn 't particularly bothered about the approval of the crowds and being considered as a great mind, he knew that he'd come to bring something that would be seen as foolishness, ultimately. He loved the crowds, loved the people, but he wouldn't he wouldn't win them by making his message seem more palatable and more sensible in their given context. And it wasn't just the things he said like that, it wasn't just the things he he did like that, it was the things he said and did at the closing stages of his career, where this A supposed king, this great leader, this one who is coming to bring in the kingdom of God, came into the city of his enemies on a donkey. And then days later, willingly submitted himself to being stripped naked and scourged. That means his back was torn open by the beatings of the whips that were designed to pull the flesh off your back and then made to carry his cross literally through the streets of the city, outside, and then be nailed to it and hung up. Shamed, hated, spat upon for hours until he died. Anybody (laughs) through history, and certainly anybody at the time, would consider such an end proof that this man has made catastrophic errors of judgment. This was a mistake. This man is a fool. This man is a failure. And yet the message of the book, of the whole Bible, and the message of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is that, in fact, God was showing his great wisdom and power through foolishness and failure. God was actually doing the greatest work of rescue that's ever been. God achieves things through what looks like weakness. God demonstrates his wisdom through what looks foolish. This is the message. It comes through the Bible consistently, and it's most powerfully and vividly, shockingly shown to us through the cross of Good Friday. And of course, it's vindicated by what happens just days later on Easter Sunday. As the tomb is empty, as Jesus is raised, the demonstration shows that in fact, God was winning through it all. God was in control. Jesus was not losing. Jesus, in fact, was gaining a future eternal kingdom and inheritance that would last forever. Jesus looked like the greatest loser in history. In fact, what he was is the greatest winner there has ever been. This is the message of, of Easter. But Just like those disciples, we mustn't kid ourselves into thinking that we've really embraced the message of Easter if it's never actually turned our ideas on their heads. If we've never ever had the discomfort of having the cross shock us by its foolishness. If it's never occurred to us to think this can't be right, then I wonder if we've ever really seen it at all. Because it, it, it should shock us. It shouldn't seem comfortable and normal. Christianity is not a sensible religion. The, the gospel, the good news of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a sensible thing. It's an extraordinary thing. It's, an, it's, a, it's a joker. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fool. And, and in fact, we see this in the way that religion tends to work or, or tries to work all the time. My experience of religion is that very often, sensible, conventional, recognized religion, rather than helping people to get to know God, can in fact be more like a vaccination against God. We have just enough, just a little bit of God, just through religion, just a tiny, tiny bit of real God, but just enough that, to make us immune. <laughs> to turn our immune systems against the real thing when it comes. I've, I've known this very often in my life when I was a teenager. Some of my friends were from a college were Roman Catholics who, who, who'd been brought up in a religious context so that when I wanted to talk to them about Jesus Christ in, in my late teens, as I'd, I'd come to know Jesus properly by then and got so excited, wanted to tell them about him. I wanted them to have what I had and they would resist saying, I've heard about this ever since I was born. I know about Jesus, and I, I, I have to say, you don't know about Jesus. You know about religion. And they'd look at me literally as if I'd gone mad. I'd said something peculiar because Jesus means religion. Jesus is the same thing as religion. And I'm here to tell you that isn't true at all. That's what Easter is about. Easter is, is the demonstration that human religion is not good enough. Religion doesn't work. Religion itself is not the answer. Jesus and what he did at Easter is quite separate from religion. How does religion uh, work? How does it try to help us to achieve? What does it call us to do? Well, let me, let me split it up into three quick examples. I'm going to give you three examples of how religion works. One would be do-good religion, where I achieve God's favour and approval by my good deeds. If I become a good enough person, if I work hard then God will accept me because I've done well, because I've behaved well. So God God now accepts me. God has to accept me on the basis of my my performance. The second one would be what I call insta-religion. I guess I'm thinking about the kind of religious mentality where life is good, therefore God is good. I, I, I associate God with the things in my life that are convenient, that are attractive, that are pleasing. And I show those things to the world and I show them. I say, look, God is good. I'm a Christian. I I love Jesus. I love the Bible. I love God. Because look, look at the good things in my life. Look, let me show you on Instagram. You know, we, we certainly don't show the bad things. That's not what Instagram's for at all. Don't ever use it for that. We, we use it to show what's going on in in, in, in our lives that's good. And, and religion can be just the same. It's just a kind of a a slicing up of our lives into the, 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 the nice things, and then we kind of celebrate God in that part of our, our life, and we keep, keep God away, or we keep any sense of religion away from the dark part because that doesn't really follow. It doesn't really work together. And the third kind of religion you could just call self-help religion, where really, whether or not there's a God isn't the point, out there, some God in the cloud, some notion of a God that's out there is not really my goal. My goal is to find the God within and to achieve the potential of what's been put within me. I'm going to keep believing in myself. I'm going to keep trying as hard as I can to fulfill my giant potential. I need to somehow tap into the the greatness of what I really am and show that I'm worth it and find my inner strength and perform according to it and somehow somehow win through achievement, through personal achievement, like my heroes who've achieved before me, and these men and these women who've done things that show that they're worth it. And I want to be like them so much, and so I'm going to just try and help myself into that. And that will be my kind of God. But let's just think about each of those three patterns of religion. You don't need the Bible to see the weakness in each one, surely. See, the first one, religion where I I do really good things in order to achieve a standard that makes me good enough for God. What's going to happen to the person who gets quite far? The person not like you and me, by the way, because we know how hard it is, but... (laughs) The person that actually achieves quite well, the person that genuinely manages to say their prayers and read their Bible and, and and maybe give money to charity, maybe join a good cause, even maybe maybe it's involve themselves in some social justice project and demonstrate they're a good person, maybe they keep up with their recycling to a very high standard and they 're ecologically sharp and smart and they do really well in all these different areas of life. What is that person? potentially going to become a bit like. See, if I, if, I, if I know that it's good to, instead of when I wake up in the morning and look at my Facebook and spend about an hour on that, actually spend about an hour in my Bible and pray and sing songs to Jesus and just try and enjoy a relationship with God. Well, if I manage to achieve that for a few days, maybe a few weeks, Maybe a few months I I read my Bible every day instead of going on Facebook. That's good. Okay, Uh, Trust me, that's a good move. I'm I'm into that. I believe in that. That's what I do. Basically, I try to. But here's the thing that I've noticed in myself and in other people too. If I keep that up to a standard, what do I start thinking about the people who go on Facebook? What do I start thinking about myself? You know that the first sin that was ever committed, the sin that got the most powerful angelic being thrown out of heaven according to the teaching of the word of god pride so in that point where i'm becoming apparently most godly i'm actually becoming most devilish <laughs> because my performance in in the end is ultimately about me it's making me very self-aware very self-congratulatory very self-righteous often Hard, dismissive of other people who aren't achieving my standard. That's what religion does to people. That's what do-good religion can achieve in people's lives. Second thing we talked about was insta-religion. What's the weakness there? Well, if if we're seeing God as basically there when life is going well, God is good because life is good, what do we do when life isn't good? How do we handle that? what we, we end up doing is really living a life of denial because well, you're not allowed to suffer. You're not allowed to be in difficulty. You can't, you can't really go through struggles and pain where God doesn't seem to answer your prayers and things don't go according to plan. You, don't look, you, can't, you haven't posted anything on Instagram for ages because there's nothing good to post. and You wouldn't want anyone to see these parts of your life. What do we do with that? What do we do with actual suffering? There's no way that suffering should be involved because all that would show is that God can't be good. So that kind of religion has got a terrible weakness right in its heart. And then third one we talked about was self-help and self-actualizing, self-fulfillment, realizing our potential and, and, and trying to achieve according to our own strength. Well, surely one of the great weaknesses of that is, that, is the, the stories of those who seem to have done it. Many people will say, yeah, I actually did achieve my very dream, the thing I had spent years preparing myself, training myself for, and when I achieved it, all I felt was a terrible emptiness. I literally think of the the, the film that the BBC put out a few weeks or days after the Olympics, back in 2012 Olympics, when they they, they gave... The very words being spoken with the camera of some of the most extraordinary athletes who'd achieved gold in their given field, and in each case these were people talking about how they felt after they'd got gold, and they talked about it as if they were in a club they kind of they were uniquely able to understand what it really feels like, not many of us presumably. They're in that club. I don't think I am. As far as I know, I've never won a gold. It may have happened in my sleep. I don't think I have. If, if you have, um, you will know what these guys knew. And that is that you can spend literally your life training for a medal that when you get it, you feel disappointed. You feel empty and you don't know what to do with yourself now. You don't know what your life is about. Because actually the thing that you assumed was some great high... God self-fulfillment i have achieved that that's my god turns out to be a tin idol it wasn't what you really needed after all it wasn't the thing you longed for after all this is this is common sense i'm not i haven't even spoken from the bible so far i haven't been bringing teaching from easter i've just been pointing out what in the end seems real and obvious about religion but then let's think about what Easter does with religion what does it do with the do good kind of religion what does Easter say to the idea of behaving well and doing so good that God has to approve of you what does Easter say about that well Easter says this you're so much worse than you think, even your best deeds are like filthy old rags. In fact, you're so bad that it took the torturous death of the Son of God to deal with the wickedness in your heart. You know, we think we're bad when we you know we get into an argument with our friend or we we hit our thumb with a hammer and swear, or we forget to pray one morning. That's bad, that's terrible. No, 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 the Bible says, and Easter says, no, you don't know how bad you are. That's not bad. What's bad is, is stuff you don't even know about. The heart, what Jesus knows, what God sees, that's serious. That's guilt, that's shame on a level we, we would be horrified to come to terms with. And yet God came to terms with it for us upon the cross. When Jesus, stripped naked and stripped of all of his dignity and all of his worth and all of his majesty, hung, despised and bleeding on the cross, it was because of what's inside me. It's because of the horror of what's in me that he became a horror on the tree. And this is what Easter says. It says to us, we we, we are Doomed to failure and to, to think that we could achieve God's standard by our efforts. That's foolishness. And if that's the best that human wisdom can come up with through history, all the religions, all the, the cupboard loads of religions that have been foisted on the human race for the centuries. What do they come up with? Foolishness. It's all foolishness. For for a man or a woman to be told, believe in yourself, you can do it, you can make it. It's a terrible lie. It's an evil lie. It loses people for eternity because they'll go in to their future and into their eternal future believing in nonsense about trying to achieve by good works what no one could achieve. It took God to achieve. God achieved it in the most horrifying way. How foolish to rely on good works. That's what Easter says. That's what Easter says. But what does Easter say to the Insta religion, the kind of happiness religion, which is really God is interested in your passing happiness. Just, just <laughs> When you go through life, it's going, well, God is good because life is good. What does Easter say? Easter says, look at the cross. Look at the God who suffers. Look at the God who suffered. Does that teach us what it means when we say God is good? We need to entirely rethink what what the good life is supposed to look like. Surely, we need to rethink what it means to say God is good. God is good all the time? Oh, yeah. Yeah including Calvary, including Good Friday, God is good. So the suffering I go through, does God have a grid? Does God have a radar? Does God understand it? You bet he does. God knows our sufferings more than we do. No one has ever suffered more. And so when we go through pain and suffering, we don't have to deceive ourselves and sing a happy tune and pretend it isn't real. Because God is good, so this doesn't, this whole part of life gets denied and wiped off the mat, or threatens our awareness that God is good. God can't be good. I give up on Christianity. I I give up on Jesus. I give up because, well, it was painful, it was dark, and my prayers didn't get answered sometimes, and, and I didn't get the health and the wealth that I was promised. Even by the preacher on the television or some, something came into my life and I, I realised I didn't, I didn't get what I was supposed to get. Christians were all promised that they would get. I didn't know where to go with that. Well, go to the cross, go to Easter, go to the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It will change the whole way you see things because you see a suffering God and a God who shows his goodness to us, not by ridding us of all our problems, but by joining us in them and by making promises to us based on his gift of himself. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not along with him freely give us all things? So suffering doesn't terrify and obstruct our sense of whether God could be good. No, we know too much. We know he's good because we've seen the cross. The third kind of religion, self-help, self-mastery, self-fulfillment. What do we say? Oh, It doesn't keep anybody fulfilled in the end. Maybe, Maybe it does, to be sure. Perhaps we can be fulfilled for a few weeks, maybe months, maybe years. We'll know the contentment that comes from a relatively happy life. for the fools who look hard under the surface, the fools who look under the crown, the fools who can see through King Lear, (laughs) us fools, we know it's not contentment we find. It's very often anxiety, trying to achieve more, trying to work out what I'm here for. Even when I get a gold medal, I still don't know what life's about. Well, this is what the Bible's always said. God speaks through his prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. Why spend your money on what is not bread, what does not satisfy? Come to me. Jesus said to the crowds in John chapter 7, If anyone thirsts, then come to me and drink. And from your inmost being will flow rivers of living water. What's the problem with all the things we bow down and give our lives to? They're not God. That's the problem with them. They're not bad, they're good. But there's a difference between good and God. You can can reject bad things and only go for good things. But the problem is, without God, the good things will become bad things. By all means, enjoy the good things. By all means, become a gold medalist, all of you. But it's not God. You were born for God. No one will satisfy you beneath him. Don't spend your life and death finding that out when you could just find it out from this book. And Easter says to you, come to the one who is a fountain of living water. Stop trying to dig your own wells. You will only find dirty water. Come to the fountain. Come to the one who on the cross gave himself for you. The one who, about whom it can truly be said, God is love. There is no one like him. You need him. And this changes everything. When we see and understand this, it does turn everything upside down. It's it's apocalyptic, changes our goals, changes our, our sense of allegiance, changes our fears. If we embrace the message of Easter, it will change us. In time, it will change us completely. We'll see things different, we'll see threats from a different direction. We'll see, we'll see what others see as a danger, as, a, as an opportunity. And we'll see what they see as an opportunity, as a threat. There was a pastor in, in uh, the Eastern Bloc during the communist dictatorships. I think he was in Poland at the time, a man called Joseph Tson. And he was told by some prison guards, if you don't stop preaching about Jesus, we will kill you. And he said to them, sirs, Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Easter will do that to you. You see everything differently. You'll start to understand what's really threatening. And you'll start to know where your security really lies. You'll start to make decisions like a friend of ours, John Wimber, made years ago. He died in the 90s. But he had an extraordinary story of how... God used him to bring blessing into hundreds and thousands of people's lives. But his Christian life started at a point where he was reminded of a a man he'd seen with a kind of board over himself, a sandwich board, which said on the front, I am a fool for Christ. And then on the back, whose fool are you? And at the time, he just dismissed it as some religious nutcase. You know, Who cares what he has to say? But at the point of crisis in his life, when he was coming to see that he needed a saviour, he needed to become a Christian, he remembered this sandwich board. And he realized that God was saying to him, Who's fool are you? And he resolved at that point, from that point on, I'll do what looks foolish in the eyes of the world. Maybe that's the point that many of us are at. Here, we've not understood that the, the threat comes from the world seeing us as wise. That's a dangerous situation. If the whole world thinks that you're wise, man, you're in trouble. But if the world starts to see you as a fool, it's possibly because there's some hope. It's possibly because you've come into something. Now, you might say, what, what, what are you saying? Are you saying that you know I'm, I'm supposed to become gullible? That, that To become a Christian means to believe things that aren't true. No, I'm not saying that. No one is encouraging you to that kind of foolishness. The Bible certainly isn't. The Bible is reasonable and presents a reasonable persuasive message. God gave you your reason. God gave you your mental faculties. Your ability to discern whether something is true or false is a God-given gift. Use it. Do not become a Christian because you feel emotional on Easter Sunday. Do not follow Jesus because, well, I know it doesn't make sense. I know it's not true, but we're supposed to follow our passions and not our minds. False. That's not true. Your passions and your minds are linked. But here's the problem. We very often fail to see how linked they are. And Many people will say, I disapprove of Christianity on the basis of reason, but their reason hasn't had a word in. They've never involved their minds. They've never thought about it. They've just used their passions. They've rejected it without thinking. That's what we very often do. We think that we're being reasonable, but our hearts, our hearts tug us in directions that our minds are forced to go in. You can have a PhD in three or four different disciplines. You could be an extremely intelligent person, but when it comes to an addiction of the heart, you become a fool. There are people who are academically, intellectually light years ahead of anyone in this room. I am not intimidated by any of their intellect. If they say Christianity can't be true because I'm clever enough to know it isn't, I tell you, they don't know what they're talking about. You can have extraordinary academic credentials and be a fool because of an addiction, because of a passion that you haven't even acknowledged. You're just living in denial. The Bible talks about the human heart just like that. Our minds can be corrupted. We can reject what's clear evidence right in front of us. And there are so many examples of that. It's fascinating to me that when Jesus rose from the dead, the Gospels describe the events in in very ultimately many different stories, many different details that that come together to give the full picture. There's there's the occasion of the the man John, one of Jesus' disciples, about whom it says in John chapter twenty it uh, says, he came to the tomb and he looked inside and he believed. John chapter 20, verse 8. He looked at the tomb. He saw that the corpse was missing. <laughs> he just believed immediately. He had enough evidence. That's all he needed to see, an empty tomb. That was enough for him. Some of you are like that. You, you, you just need someone to sit you down and explain, why do we believe in the resurrection? These things were written thousands of years ago. Why do we believe them? What do you mean evidence for the resurrection? Is there actual evidence? You bet there is. Let us sit you down and talk to you about it. And for some of you, that's all you need to see. And you'll believe immediately because you're ready to believe. You see it and you get it. For others, though, it's curious. You can have loads of evidence, loads of reasons to believe, but still not be persuaded. Thomas was like that. One of Jesus' other disciples. He said, when they said to him, he's risen, risen. we've seen him. Thomas said, I don't believe it, and I will not believe it until I actually put my hands in his wounds. I want to put my fingers in the wounds. What's going on there? Thomas is not believing these friends who he's trusted for years. Neither is he believing the actual words of Jesus who did say to him, Disciples, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again on the third day. Jesus said that was going to happen. <laughs> Thomas doesn't believe his friends, doesn't believe the word of his master, doesn't believe the teaching of the whole book. The whole If he read his Bible properly, he would have known that death and resurrection was part of the plan. But he didn't. He didn't take any of this seriously. Not God's words, not his friend's words, not his master's words. He rejected it all. And he demanded a certain kind of evidence that was just cooked up for him. We often do that. We would despise very good information, real data, real evidence, and insist on our own kind. Yeah, well, that's all very well, but I need this. I need this to be proven to me, and then I'll believe. Now, I don't know completely why Thomas went there. I don't know why he was quite so insistent, but I guess... There must have been quite a lot of pain involved. Pain of watching his master arrested and crucified, the pain of wondering what had gone on. Perhaps there were all kinds of pains in his life. Wondering what what who he should trust, whether he should trust, what's going on with God. Is God even trustworthy? Is God even real? I don't know what Thomas was thinking. I can think of people like him though, including me. Times when I've doubted and struggled with God have often been to do with times where he doesn't seem to show up and he lets me down, or he's not really very real to me at the moment. And so I make my mind up against him. Wonderful thing is that when Jesus does show up with Thomas, Thomas, Thomas doesn't actually have to put his fingers in the wounds. He sees enough. Jesus kindly shows up and Thomas falls on his knees and says, My Lord and my God. Thomas didn't even do what he said he was going to do. He doesn't do the tests. He just sees Jesus and trusts. He sees enough. Maybe you've you've seen something today. Maybe just being here for Easter. Maybe stuff that your friends have told you about, the difference Jesus has made in their life. Maybe having prayers answered, things you've never even told anyone about. You've prayed a prayer and God answered it and you were kind of embarrassed and didn't tell anybody because it showed that God must be real and don't want that to happen. Maybe just hearing about Jesus today and what he did for you on the cross, how he died for you, has suddenly conquered you. And against all expectations, here at Emmanuel on a Sunday, just like Thomas, you're able to say, my Lord and my God. I hope that's true. I hope that you're ready to follow him. Maybe you say, well, I want to examine more. I want to look more. I want more information. That's fine. There's an empty tomb. There's there's ways we can help you. There's things we can explain. But today, for some of you, today is the day. Come to Christ. It's a big decision. You're saying, I want to be his fool. (laughs) But I'd rather be a fool with him. I'd rather be with Christ outside the camp, outside the city, rejected, if you like, knowing that I get with him to inherit a resurrection, a future, a kingdom that is to come, that's characterized by his mercy and his love being given to me forever and ever. That's what Easter teaches us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of Easter We thank you for what it teaches us about you and your ways. And we pray you would help us, each one, to trust forever in your provision for us through Jesus Christ. Amen.